0: wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Resilient faith. If you're just joining us, that's the title of our six week Lenten sermon series. And this is message four of six in our series that aims to deepen our trust in Christ and to grow our faith, to withstand the trials, the challenges and storms of life, to develop the grit and the adaptability and the resilience of our Lord Jesus. And we began our series by looking at some of the metaphors that the scriptures use to describe how God shapes us and our faith through trials and hardships. Well, and with that, I invited us to see and embrace our own wilderness, and many of us have been walking through a wilderness of sorts, right? To embrace that as an opportunity to build character, to grow our endurance and to thrive on the other side. And then two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus shows us that you can't build resilient faith unless you learn to resist temptation and evil. Resistance builds resistance. Resistance, sorry, resistance builds resilience. That's what I meant to say. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? In that message, I challenge us to view prayer, like Jesus and the apostles, as a weapon of resisting spiritual darkness. We have to fight in this way if we're going to overcome our flesh, the world, and the devil. And then last week, I shared a message called The Necessity of Lament. I said that this life is full of trials and troubles, and if we don't acknowledge what is wrong and learn how to properly lament, we will grow to be spiritually malformed. So we must do three things, I said, because lament says this isn't right. It says, this hurts, but what? I'm not quitting. This was a week ago, I know. This isn't right. This hurts, but I'm not quitting. And three, God, I need your help. I hope that you found that sermon helpful, and I hope that we'll continue to practice lament together whenever the need arises. All of that brings us to the next installment, a message I've entitled today, Know Who You Are know who you are. And let me just say, I think that this is the most important message that disciples of Jesus need to hear. Now, that isn't me saying this is the best message that you're ever going to hear preached, but the content of this sermon is one of the most, if not the most important message that we could hear today as disciples of Jesus. And I think that that will become clear as we move along today. So if you would, I'd encourage you to take some notes if that's something that's helpful for you and really tune in to the voice of the Spirit this morning. Let's pray. Father, our ears and our hearts are open to you. Holy Spirit, I don't know what we've all brought into this room this morning, but I pray whatever it is that we would lay it at your feet right now we empty ourselves out before you. Fill us now with your Spirit. Words of hope, of conviction, of encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone ever experienced amnesia? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced amnesia. Okay, a couple of you. I've never personally experienced it, but I can imagine how troubling that would be. Uh, When I was a teenager, uh, we were, I think it was around Christmas time, we played a football game when we were younger uh, at my grandparents' house, out in a big field in front of their house. And my grandfather, who was probably in his 60s at the time, early 60s, very active, you know, staying busy and healthy and fit, uh, went up to try to catch a pass, and he, when he fell, I think he toppled over my uncle or something, his son, and hit his head on the ground. Well, we thought he was okay. He hopped up, brushed himself off. A couple plays later, we see my grandfather kind of standing off to the side, look, looking dazed and confused. And we start to try to talk to him, and he does not know what's going on. He doesn't know where he's at. He doesn't even know what we're doing. We try to tell him who he is. We say, look, there's your house up there. It's Christmas time. Look at the lights. He's like just bewildered. Like, We're playing football. Look at your clothes. Like this is really starting to concern us. Come to find out he had some sort of temporary amnesia. It took a matter of, of a few hours before he realized who he was, where he was, and what had happened to him. It's pretty scary, right? Right? And thankfully, my my papa is what we call him. He got better. And he knew a little bit about amnesia. And it would be certainly frightening if you didn't know who you were. Right? Just ask Jason Bourne. Yes, there's a picture of Matt Damon, but he played the character Jason Bourne. As many of you know, the Bourne movies are a series of action thriller films based on the character Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne is a CIA assassin, suffering from disassociative amnesia, who must figure out who he is, how it is that he has James Bond-like reflexes, how it is that he can guess your weight, he, he, can, he can tell you all the license plate numbers out in the parking lot, and why people want him dead. This is what he's trying to figure out. Who, who, who am I? you can say that Jason Bourne definitely shows resiliency in seeking to discover his identity. This guy stops at nothing. He'll stop at nothing to get the answers that he's looking for. And if you threaten his life, well, he's liable to beat you down with a rolled up magazine or a ballpoint pen. I mean, this is, this is how Jason Bourne is, has been skilled. And of course, He'll do it all and not have a clue how he's doing it because he doesn't know who he is. And that Jason Bourne story, much like our own lives, is driven by this question Who am I? Who am I? It's a question that we all ask in one form or another. That's why I know that today's message is relevant to all of us, every single one of us. Which has much to do with why I think that it's, this is one of the most important messages. It's because your identity, listen to me, knowing who you are is absolutely essential to the health and the flourishing of human beings. To know who we are. Because, like Jason Bourne, you can't ever find peace, you can't ever find purpose and rest in your soul until you know who you are and align yourself to the truth. And to live into that truth is God created you to do, which brings us back to Jesus in the wilderness. You knew I would tie Jason Bourne into Jesus in the wilderness somehow. Here we go. Let's begin our scripture reading with Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Think about this. Heaven being torn open indicates what is known in theology as a theophany, a revelation is happening here. The Greek word for being torn is schizo, and the only other time that this Greek word is used in the Gospel of Mark is when Mark describes the tearing of the temple curtain in chapter 15, verse 38. In other words, this event is a divine breakthrough. It's something supernatural. And the dove here, while many scholars debate its meaning, I think it's safe to say, is symbolic of the Spirit coming to rest on Jesus, the ruach of God, the breath, the wind, the Spirit of God, like in Genesis, hovering over the waters like a bird, coming to rest on Jesus, a symbol of His anointing. Verse 11. Look at this. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters, don't miss what is happening here. And think about this Jesus has done nothing publicly significant or noteworthy up to this point. He hasn't healed anyone, he hasn't told a parable, he hasn't preached a sermon, he hasn't performed a miracle. Up to this point, Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph from the Potip town of Nazareth, has lived a simple but faithful life of obscurity for about 30 years of his life. And here are the words coming from the Father. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And then one day, Christ walks into the Jordan to be baptized by his cousin John. And these words from the Father in heaven Folks, why is this so important? It's important because it says that God's favor and our worth is not dependent upon anything that we've done or will do. Did you hear me? I mean, we ought to be shouting for joy and running the aisles if we weren't worshiping with restrictions. This is important because Jesus is about to begin his ministry, look at this, from a place of affirmation, from a place of security, of belonging, and of acceptance. He begins there. you got to know that makes a difference. Because the Father's love isn't dependent upon any of those things. Jesus doesn't need to earn the Father's favor. He already has it. You see where we're going with this? And because of that, he doesn't need everyone to like him. He doesn't need everyone to like his sermons. He doesn't need everyone to agree with him. Because, you know, when you get your life from that, what happens when someone disagrees with you? And Jesus is never that way. How? Why? Because Jesus knows who he is. He has the Father's favor. He doesn't need yours and he doesn't need mine. (laughs) He doesn't need others to meet his emotional needs. While some of those things are nice and helpful, we all appreciate them, right? We do. Jesus will get his life from the Father, not from anything the world has to offer. You see, church, this is important because these words of favor, an affirmation of the Lord's identity and calling, are what Jesus hears right before he goes into the wilderness. And don't you know that made a difference? To hear these words of affirmation and favor from the Father before he goes into the wilderness. Verse 12: At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So what is the wilderness all about? Is it not ultimately about the testing of one's identity? Joe Saxton, an author and speaker, says this about the wilderness. She says, the wilderness can test your identity to the breaking point. It's where the authenticity of your purpose is challenged to its core. The pressure and pain of the experience strips away pretension and reveals what is truly happening inside. You know, folks, if you're paying attention, your hardships and your trials, they do this, don't they? Especially in the darkest of times. They eventually uncover and expose us for who we really are and, and then invites us to ask the most basic question of all, who am I? As we can see with Jesus in the wilderness, the testing that comes from the harsh terrain of the world can bring about the temptations and the doubts that the enemy then seeks to use to exploit by calling our identity into question. Remember the Father said to Jesus, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. But then the testing comes. Out in the wilderness, and out slithers the tempter, saying these words, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Listen to that. Jesus is told who he is, and the first thing the tempter says, If you are who the Father says you are. (laughs) Turn these stones to bread. Use your power to manipulate, to satisfy yourself. Use your power to feed people's bellies. Don't worry about their souls. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the Temple Mount. Use your power. If you are who the Father says you are, use your power to convince people So you don't have to go the way of suffering, the Via Della Rosa. You don't have to go through the wilderness. We all know how Jesus responds to the tempter. And look, folks, this wasn't a new tactic. It's an old one. It's an ancient tactic. In fact, what is happening here with Jesus in the wilderness looks a lot like a scene we're all familiar with from the book of Genesis chapter 3. You recall in the Garden of Eden, the tempter is described as coming to the first human pair in the form of a crafty serpent. Which is interesting, since in the ancient world, the serpent was a symbol of wisdom and of healing, actually. Yeah, this is why you sometimes see the, the, the snake on the staff with, with medical things. The serpent was thought of as having wisdom and healing. But look how the Bible uses this image. Turns it on its head. That's not what happens here. Think about it. You're an ancient reader, you're reading along, and you see the serpent comes in the picture, you're like, oh, something good's about to happen, right? No. Plot twist the serpent sneaks up on Eve, who's all alone and who didn't hear God's command for herself. If you go back and look at the story, Adam heard it, not Eve. Eve heard it through Adam. And the tempter says, Did God really say? Sounds a lot like what the tempter said to Jesus. Did God, if this is true, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, notice the tempter wants to sow seeds of doubt about God's word and, and then eventually leads to a sinister invitation to doubt God's character which is where our identity is founded, you see. Doubt God's Word, doubt God's character, and you don't know who you are. And because of Adam and Eve's choice to sin, they experience an identity crisis. What the Bible calls the flesh was born at this point. It follows this way. An identity of flesh began in Eden... And what Paul calls calls in Romans chapter 12 verse 2 the pattern of this world, right? Do not conform yourself to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the pattern of the world is the flesh. An identity of flesh began in Eden, and the pattern of this world seeks to maintain and conform us to a false identity at every turn. Get your identity from the stuff. Be a consumer. Get your identity from your sexual orientation. Get your identity from what this person says about you. Get your identity from your promotion or your demotion. You see, this is the way the world works. And there are really three three basic lies that are wrapped up in this. Lie number one, you can see this in the garden. You can see it with Jesus. You can do better than God. You can't really trust him. Did God really say you can do better? The second lie, you can live without God. Imagine that. Imagine that you could live without God. And lie number three, you can be your own God. Look at the progression. You can't really trust God. You don't really need him in your life. You don't need the church's liturgies. You don't need those. Just live how you want. Live for yourself. You know, be a good person. And then the the ultimate lie here is you can save yourself. But we don't want to go down that road, amen? We don't want to go down that road. Instead, we need to know what the Bible says is true about us. So here's a little theology. Let's think biblically and theologically about this so we can truly understand what Christ has done for us and how we can know who we are, our true identity according to the gospel. Here's what the Scriptures teach about human beings. Here's the bigger, bigger picture. As we see in Genesis 3, the first human sinned and experienced shame, Emptiness, this is the, what nakedness was all about in Genesis 3. They experienced shame, guilt, emptiness, and enmity between God, separation and hostility between themselves and God and others. What does the Bible say about you? It also says we're made in God's image, but broken and not as we should be. Oh, the world just gets this one wrong. But, folks, this is what the Bible teaches. We're all made in God's image. We all have inherent worth and value, but we're all so broken and not as we should be. Just because you're a certain way or feel a certain thing doesn't get God's stamp of approval. As as much as we can't say the devil made me do it, we also can't say God made me this way if in fact it doesn't look like Jesus and what it means to be a fully functional, healthy, flourishing human being. So we're made in God's image but broken down as we should be. Not everything is as God intends. Therefore, we are all born into flesh, the Scripture teaches, in a world that has been impacted by the fall. When you think of a fall, you often think of tripping and falling down. Really, this, what we're talking about is a rebellion. A rebellion in heaven and a rebellion on earth. And then so God sent Christ to free us from the flesh and the fall by giving us a new identity. The first uh, youth group I ever uh, pastored, we had a a name for the group. We were called Sinners Made Saints. (laughs) It sounded good at 20 years old. Sinners Made Saints. But this is true. This is what Christ wants to do give us a new identity based on what He's done for us. I can't think of a better passage on our new identity in this new life that Christ offers than in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17 you have your Bible and you want to read along there with me, uh, please do. Or you can just listen as I read. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. I'm not going to read this whole passage. There's 17 verses there. But I want to just read a few verses. And I encourage you to go read this on your own. I I don't know. I think Romans 8 may be my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. It's a good one. You need to read it. But look at what chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says. Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to hide from God as Adam and Eve did. There's no condemnation. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 5, Paul says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And then in verse 14 through 17, Paul says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, in the ancient world, to be adopted, in the, say in the, in the Roman culture and context, meant that you get all the rights and privileges of the one adopting you. So our adoption to sonship, our adoption to daughtership, into Christ, Allows us to say to God and to call upon God in this way in the Aramaic, Abba. You know, in English, those, sometimes the first words uh, might be dada, you know. <laughs> Usually it's mama, but dada. This was the Aramaic, Abba. You get to call upon God and know him as father. Isn't that wonderful? The Spirit Himself testifies with our Spirit that we are God's children. And now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that He may also share, we may also share in His glory. And think of that as you go through the wilderness, who you are. Even when we suffer, we can be like Christ. And know our true identity. And that's not what all Paul says about this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, a, a verse that many of you are probably familiar with. Paul says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I lived in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And look, folks, if anybody knows this, it's Paul, the former persecutor of Christians. My old self has been crucified. I have a new life. And this tells us that you're not the worst thing that you've ever done. Isn't that great? We call it good news for a reason. You're not the worst thing you've ever done. And like Jason Bourne, once you realize who you are at your worst, as Jason did at the end of the first movie, and as Saul of Tarsus did on the road to Damascus, you can then say, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. You can choose to say, I don't want to be the old self. I don't want to be the sinner and the killer. Instead, I want a new identity. I want a new life. And so I receive again and again what Christ has done for me. That's how Paul can write this to the messed up Corinthian church. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17, Christ died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating our, our, our others from a human point of view. And at one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. And this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. Now, maybe that there is someone listening to this message about our identity in Christ. You're, you're hearing this message about our identity in Christ, maybe for the first time. But chances are, for a lot of us, we've, we've heard this before. In fact, we've heard it a lot but we keep forgetting it. So for many of us, the wilderness comes and, and God wants to use it to remind you of who you are and where you ought to get your life from. Makes me think of another movie. 51st Dates. You ever see this? Ah, more resonation with that than Jason Bourne. I can make a note of this. Fifty First Dates. It's a, it's a romantic comedy starring Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. And Barrymore's character, Lucy, has a short-term memory loss due to an accident, and she can't remember anything that happened the day before. And in this state, she meets uh, Adam Sandler's character, and they, they fall in love. Uh, but the thing is, at the end of every day, she wakes up in the morning, and she doesn't know him. And she doesn't remember the man who loves her. So Henry, played by Sandler, has to help her every day remember who she is and how they met as he attempts to woo her again and again. There's a wife somewhere elbowing her husband. You see where this is going? Don't we need those reminders? from the Father. We too need to become aware of the One who created us for Himself, who loves us as we are and not as we should be, and wants us to know who we are in Him. How do we do this when it seems that we so quickly forget? And when, as the pastor and hymn writer Robert Robinson put it, we're so prone to wonder. Here are a few things I'd like to suggest that we do. We can root our identity in Christ by, number one, meditating on the God revealed in Jesus. Meditating. Some kind of Eastern thing. What are we, what are we talking about? Meditating. It, it, can, it can look different for, for all of us. But, but think about this. A.W. A. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So, what comes into your mind? When you think about God, and if it doesn't look like Jesus, guess what? It's not the it's not a right portrait. And chances are, for many of us, our portrait of God has been shaped by all kinds of people and ideas that don't reflect Christ. Maybe well-intentioned people, maybe in church we learned it, but it doesn't look like Christ. Therefore, we have to be intentional in constantly aligning and realigning our thoughts about God to be consistent with the God revealed in Jesus. And we can do that by regularly reading and reflecting on the Gospels, practicing imaginative prayer. I do this. You know, we're talking about prayer, not just prayer where you just talk and God listens, but it's where you talk and then you see Jesus sitting across from you and he speaks back. Try it. You can do other things. Listen to music, read books on the subject, listen to podcasts that are meant to reframe your portrait of God. Whatever it is and whatever you do, do something. Otherwise, competing portraits and lies of the tempter will find their way into your mind and your heart and lead you away from the God who looks like Jesus. And that's a problem because we see ourselves most clearly when we see God for who He is in Christ. Did you hear that? We see ourselves most clearly when we see God in Christ. The second thing we can do is practice Sabbath, that is regular rhythms of work and rest. I know this can be really difficult for us. We're we're Americans, and we so easily want to get our identity from what we do, from our work, and being busy, it fulfills us, at least for a little while. And this is particularly hard for leaders. But setting aside a day to rest reminds us that we are human beings, not human doings you are not what you do you are not your work as as God would tell Israel you're no longer slaves in Egypt so don't live like it that's that's how the slaves lived seven days seven days a week they worked the Sabbath is a blessing partake of the blessing of Sabbath and get your life back God did how much more do we need it? Let Sabbath reset your heart to the things of God. Let it open up space for you to remember who you are. You are loved by God for being you. His child co-heirs with Christ, not for what you do, but because of who you are in him. Amen. And the third thing we can do to root our identity in Christ, allow the wilderness to shape you or to reshape you. As I said earlier, the wilderness has a way of exposing what's happening on the inside especially the stuff that doesn't reflect Christ and needs to be repented of if we're going to grow in our faith. So let it. Allow the wilderness to shape and to chisel off all that doesn't reflect your new identity as a follower of Jesus. Some junk has bubbled up to the surface through COVID in your life, right? And you're seeing it. At least your wife is seeing it or your husband's seeing it. Your kids are seeing it. Your grandkids are seeing it. Somebody's seeing it. Maybe you need help seeing it. But you need to see it, and we need to deal with it. Let God scrape off the junk that floats to the top in this wilderness. You'll be better for it. Capitalize on the opportunity, church. Allow the wilderness to shape and to chisel off what doesn't reflect Christ. And I should probably say this. Don't compare yourself to others in the pursuit of holiness. Don't do it social media just conditions us to do this, doesn't it? But don't compare yourself to others. I heard one psychologist put it this way. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. In other words, work on your own growth. You take responsibility for you and leave others to God. Finally, let's let's close with these questions for reflection and response. And I just want us to sit with these for just a second before we pray and receive communion. Number one, who or what is shaping your identity on a regular basis? are the voices that you listen to pointing you to Christ? The second question. Does your view of yourself reflect what the Bible says? If not, what needs to change? And in a lot of cases, what needs to be healed? The Lord can do that for you today. Then lastly, number three: In what way is the Spirit inviting you to know who you are in Christ and grow a more resilient faith in the wilderness? Father, we want to know who we are in Christ. We need more than just words. We need those words to be accompanied by a real experience in our soul, to feel your favor and the peace and freedom that comes from being loved by you as we reflect on what we've heard, and as we prepare to receive communion together, we pray that your Spirit would move in us to confess our sins and believe, to believe in your grace. The grace that says we're forgiven. The grace that says that we can change. The grace that says that we can live into our purpose as your children. Thank you, Lord, for making that possible. And bless us now as we remember who we are at your table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.